when the artwork is on point. When, really wizards, again, when it's a long way to the bottom. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ryu, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Lennon. And I'm Ostron. And this is the 224th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, September 3rd, and released Wednesday, September 7th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Ostron, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? This week, we are going to wander into the market of Minoros to see what mysterious and magical items have filtered up for sale. Next, we check out some D&D news as we discuss Wizards of the Coast's latest terrible idea, Spelljammer. <laughs> and the rest of it? Fine, the terrible idea was the origin lore for the Hadozi. But they wouldn't have had this problem at all without Spelljammer to begin with. After that, we take a short rest and open our adventurer's journals for a class in tactical falling, before finally heading into the scrying pool to see what you have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a walk over to the market of Minoros. The finest merchandise is available at your non-sale today. Come on down. What if I were to offer you six magic beads? I'm afraid currency is the currency of the realm. Welcome one and all to the marvellous market of Minoros, a roundup of our favourite D&D projects live on Kickstarter, as selected by the master of the marketplace, Bloodlake. A perfect way to lighten the burden of all the gold pieces that are burning a hole in your pocket after your latest adventures. So, Fallout New Vegas, Crusader Kings 2, Civilization, and Darkest Dungeon. These are just some of the video games that I'm aware of. And it's also, luckily, the best way to describe the first item on today's marketplace. It is Sebastian Crow's Guide to Drakenheim, and it is coming to us from a group calling themselves the Dungeon Dudes. So far they've had two Kickstarters, this is their second, and they have had one previous success which was actually funded in under five minutes. They've asked for a goal of 20,000 US dollars, and as of the time of this recording, they're currently sitting at around $772,000, so it's a pretty safe bet that this one is going to go ahead. As of the time of this recording as well, you also have 13 days left to pledge. So, as I mentioned, those games earlier, Fallout New Vegas, Crusader Kings 2, Darkest Dungeon, that is a really good way to describe the world of Drakenheim. It's equal parts post-apocalyptic mixed with the sort of eldritch horror of Darkest Dungeon and has the political intrigue of Crusader Kings 2. It also has a hex-based system, which is why I threw Civilization in there. That's about the, the closest that I can get on that one, I'm afraid. Anyway, this Kickstarter is named Sebastian Crow's Guide to Drakenheim. The previous Kickstarter was called Dungeons of Drakenheim. And I'm actually going to talk about the previous Kickstarter first because it helps understanding that to know what this one's all about. The previous Kickstarter was, as it sounded, a list of dungeons. And it was aimed primarily at DMs and it contained all the usual sort of things. It's dungeons with adventures set in this world of Drakenheim. It had some cool mechanics like there's a mineral called Delirium. And that's actually what's caused this sort of post-apocalyptic 
uh, kind of landscape and there was a lot of political intrigue surrounding the nature of the delirium I don't want to ruin it too much in case anybody is out there playing through this or is going to pick up a set themselves but in short it was very much a product aimed at dms dms could run the dungeons either as standalone content or they could actually set their games in the world of drakenheim but it still used all the base fifth edition stuff this new kickstarter the sebastian crow's guide to drakenheim very much is modeled after the wizards of the coast recent 5th edition books, whereby this is actually a player's supplement combined with a gazetteer. So this one, still set in Drakenheim, but very much aimed at the players rather than at the DMs. That's not to say that DMs won't get anything out of this, because there is a lot of good stuff in here still. It's just if you want a book primarily of adventures and dungeons, the other one is where you want to go. If you're a player though, and you are currently playing in a Drakenheim campaign, or if you're a DM who is curious and wants to pick up something that will actually add even more Drakenheim flavor to it, this is the book to go for. So this one is a guide written by uh, the Sebastian Crow character in the game. As far as the Gazetteer side goes, it introduces the players to the world that Drakenheim is in. It gives an overview of the uh, causes and effects of delirium. It also takes you through history, characters, locations, etc., uh, along with also spelling out the political systems to really get players involved. The next part of the book, though, is all about the additional mechanics that players can use. So this book introduces a new 5th edition class, the Apothecary, which is, in the truest sense, a healer type. I know that clerics and paladins can heal, but the Apothecary is actually designed as a healer class. It then has three subclasses, which is the Pathogenist, the Reanimator, and the Mutagenist. So healer might be a little bit of a stretch. I think reanimators, it's still healing, it's just a little bit delayed, you know? As well as that, there are also several subclasses, uh, at least one for each of the regular classes bar the Artificer. So there's, you know, Wizard, Warlock, Cleric, Druid. Every single one of them has a subclass. It also introduces over 50 new spells to the game, a lot of them themed around the Drakenheim setting. And uh, it also introduces a new system which uses tools and tool proficiencies, and it also includes several new toolkits in this book. Uh, but it also adds feats in with them and gives you a whole system of what they call tool feats, which allow the players to use their tools along with a feat in order to effectively uh, craft things, to improve weapons and armor, to brew potions, etc. Uh, it's actually very cool. They've given some free samples in the Kickstarter pledge listing, and you can go through that and just check out the sort of quality of the work that they're going to be putting throughout this entire book and I've got to say it it very much feels like this could be an official fifth edition setting. So let's talk about the pledge levels. This one has gone absolutely wild with the stretch goals so there is a lot of stretch goal stuff but if you're just interested in the base Sebastian Crow's guide to Drakenheim then 
that will start out at $25 for the PDF copy. And if you then want to go up to the physical copy, you're going to be looking at $65, but this also includes a player journal. So it's kind of like a notebook that the players can use to detail their travels and their adventures in the world of Drakenheim. From there, it goes up with more and more stretch goals and additional things. There are cloth maps of the world. There are arcane anomaly decks, which come in handy when you're dealing with the delirium. There is also a whole slew of miniatures and one that is using the WizKids definition of miniature because it's over 10 inches tall, named the Duchess, who is just an absolute eldritch horror in her own right and when you see the size of this mini quote mini stood next to a regular mini it is just dwarfed in comparison that tier if you want the duchess along with the pdf that's 120 dollars and then it just keeps going up they've got ones that have a, a set of minis for the new class that they've introduced there's then a add-on set that also features the common enemies that you will run into as well as a branded Sebastian Crow's Guide to Drakenheim dice scroll case set. And in case you guys have never seen a dice scroll before, it's a dice holder in the shape of a scroll that also folds out into a rolling mat for you to roll on, and it's got some really nice artwork on it. As I said with this, the pledge levels have gone to extremes because of the amount that it is made over the requested goal. If you want the base package, $25, the absolute biggest package that they have, excluding add-ons, is $275, and that includes basically everything that I read out just then. Uh, that's the, the books, the card decks, the maps, the player journals, the minis, the maxi minis, the whole works. One of the other things that they are doing with this, though, is they are doing an add-ons system. So if you wanted, for example, say, the dice scroll case, but just the PDF copy, well, you can just put in the pledge for the base PDF copy, and then once the campaign is over, this is all going to be held through backer kit, and you will be able to add some additional add-ons as well. There's also a DM screen in there as well if you really want to theme it uh, to your tables. There are a couple of uh, additional stretch goals that they are yet to unlock though. Uh, one of them is going to be the Dwellers of Space Between Worlds. And Osteron, you don't have to panic, this is not a Spelljammer thing. It's just even more statistics for the sort of Cthulhu Far Realm type monsters. Um, and then the last stretch goal that they're going to do is for uh, two adventures that will come in PDF form entitled The Horror at Ash Bay and The Terror in Tearhaven. So as for Drakenheim itself, You've probably got a good flavour of it by now. It really is that kind of darkest dungeon, eldritch horror kind of vibe mixed with the post-apocalyptic element, all set in a magical, fantastical universe. I've checked out all the free items that are in the Kickstarter, and I actually have a PDF copy of the original Dungeons of Drakenheim, and these are some of my favourite settings, so I was very pleased that this came up in a Kickstarter today. Uh, Ostron, Ryu, what do you make of this? I'm curious about your thoughts. I really like the setting. It's it's very interesting, but I'm but more than anything, I'm very intrigued with these tool feats. This is something that I've never even seen anywhere else before. Yeah, they make a point of highlighting how they tried to encourage more use and more functionality around the tool sets that are available in the fifth the 
toolbox, for lack of a better term. And I think they said they added some more on top of the ones that already exist, but it's nice that they are expanding some of the existing mechanics rather than just making completely new ones all the time like a lot of these things do. Yeah, one of the freebies that you can check out, I think it's the second one, actually introduces us to the Investigator's Kit, which is a new toolkit. And then it also gives examples of three tool feats. So one of them, for example, is the Arcane Fletcher, which allows you to spend an hour to craft uh, elemental arrows or elemental bolts. It does give a lot of prerequisites, like you've got to have access to your tools, you need this amount of money per arrow that you create. And then it also details the stats that they do. Uh, one thing that I did quite like about it, though, is that the feat is also tied to your level so at base level it does one amount of damage but by the time you get to 12th level it actually increases the damage that you're able to craft with it so it's not like just a feat that you might take early on that then gets superseded by something this sort of thing will actually be helpful throughout your whole career i believe i know this is sort of a minor thing but i do like how it's fairly far down the page but the kickstarter description has pricing tables for both their tiers and the add-on shopping. Uh, it makes it really easy to figure out how to get exactly what you want and how much it's going to cost. It's almost like they, they want you to give them money. Yeah, but despite that, not a lot of Kickstarters go through the... I know. <laughs> um, ...the effort to lay it out nicely like that. Mm -hmm. And before we move on, I just want to once again point out the art in this book the art is gorgeous and it follows on very nicely from the previous uh, dungeons of drakenheim that had some really nice artwork in it as well so it's their team has just gotten bigger they've added a lot more people the artworks the artists themselves have improved since the last book it's it is a really good looking resource as seems to be a requirement whenever there are eldritch horrors involved there is so much deep purple <laughs> <laughs> if you like purple and you like gold this is the kickstarter for you all right ostron speaking of uh, purple i believe you've got something that's amethyst if i'm right yes so uh the amethyst 5e kickstarter is another post-apocalyptic style conversion of 5e i'm going to call it but where Lenin's resource focused more on Darkest Dungeon and Crusader Kings, Amethyst 5e takes more of a Borderlands approach to things, although it's more grounded and less wacky than those video games tend to be. It is put out by a company called DSX Machina. It is their fifth Kickstarter. Their previous four were all successful, and I should note that they are not a new company. Uh, Amethyst 5e is actually an alternate setting that they've been maintaining for D&D since edition 3.5. They kept it going through 4th edition, and this is actually the third book they're putting out for 5th edition with it. So this is not something new. These people are not new at this. They've been doing it for a while. They know their stuff. The pledges are in Canadian dollars. They were asking for 15,000 of those. They currently have almost 50 and one half thousand dollars. So they are 
very well set, and they still have 25 days to go on the Kickstarter by the time of this recording. Uh, for those of you at home, the current exchange rate is roughly 75 cents in U.S. currency to one Canadian dollar, so just take all the numbers I give you and multiply them by 0.75, and then you've got your answer. Easy. So, as I said, Amethyst 5e is... I'm going to call it a conversion because they start with the 5th edition rules, but they change a lot of things about them. This is the third resource that they are putting out to support this setting and world. The first two books that they put out were called Amethyst Quintessence and Amethyst Factions, each of which was a resource that was 400 or more pages long. And this book, which is the third one, is called Amethyst Revelations, and they haven't quite narrowed down the page count yet, but they're approaching 400 again. And each book included races, sub-races, classes, subclasses, backgrounds, monsters, a whole bunch of spells, and new mechanics as well as an adventure included in I believe all three, if not just the first two. In addition to the resource books, the main creator of the setting, one Chris DS, has penned three full-size novels that are set within the world that Amethyst 5e bases its stories on. So those are also available as part of the Kickstarter, which makes the pricing on the tiers a little messy. So the first tier is actually five Canadian dollars, but that gets you the PDF of the third novel. You have to go down to the fourth pledge level, which is 24 Canadian dollars, which is for the PDF version of the third resource book for this setting. And then if you want to get all three RPG resources, it's going to set you back 67 Canadian dollars. Now, they have emphasized that it is possible to still play a complete game and use all of the rules and modifications that they've made with the third book, you don't have to get either of the first two, but they obviously would like you to because it'll give you a better sense of the setting, and of course you'd be giving them more money. So what is this setting? Why should you buy these books? Like I said, it's still post-apocalyptic, and it's sort of an alternate history take. Uh, in this setting, it takes place on the Earth, our Earth. And what happened is there was a dimensional rift that opened and pitted our society, which is based on realism and science, against a society where everything that we use technology for, they use magic for. And there are a couple of different lore reasons why the two don't intermix and they interfere with each other. And the whole theme of it is pick a side. So either emphasize a focus on technology or emphasize a focus on magic. Large machines, guns, and more modern-themed things like robots and things like that are a major feature 
of this setting. It's almost more of an urban fantasy, but again, with the post-apocalyptic ramshackle cobbled together aesthetic that is common to, like I said, Borderlands and similar things like that. So if that's what you're looking for in a 5e game and you want a very well-established setting that in addition to these resources, it's been around a while, so there are probably countless different things you can find online to add on. Uh, this is something you should definitely take a look at. So again, with the art, <laughs> also, also, I'm, I am really digging the uh, opossum ninja they've got <laughs> showcased, or not really showcased, but shown. Mm-hmm. Jumping through the air with two billy sticks, about to beat the yep. crap out of something. Yeah, no, I did like that. That caught my attention too. I do like this. Um, I mean, I I'm a fan of Eberron, so there's clearly no surprise that I kind of like this loose blending of technology and magic. This obviously ramps it up to 11. This kind of gives me vibes of uh, Numenaria. I don't know if you guys have ever explored that system or not. That one is very, like, um, I don't even want to say post-apocalyptic because that kind of missells it. But that's like a million years in the future and there is technology that is just completely lost that might as well be magic. This kind of gives me sort of vibes of maybe this is in the lead up to that. And that's really intriguing. Except that the whole thing with this setting is that the magic and the technology can't mix for some reason. So like there, there is no blending. It's just an all out war between the the two genres, I guess. That was what sort of caught my eye about it is there's a an almost irreconcilable conflict that's at the center of it. And you have to sort of find a way to deal with that. Just to be clear, when I said a blending of technology and magic, I didn't necessarily mean in a single item. I just meant in a single okay. setting. Uh, so there is technology here. There is also magic here. Yes, in this world, the two do not get along at all, but introducing more technological stuff alongside the magical is always something that like fascinates me. You said that this uh, has, had been around for a very long time and they have been running it in previous editions. By the look of it, it looks like it's also going to be compatible with um, 1D&D or whatever the name for that ends up being. Do you know if their older books are not necessarily compatible, but at least lore consistent. So if you had the third edition stuff. I'm pretty sure that at a lore level, everything's consistent for the most part. It's been, like I said, the same team, more or less, that's been doing this all the way through. I don't know a great deal about this system, uh, but right. it's, yeah, it, it's mostly lore consistent, I believe. Okay, so we've had something purple, we've had something amethyst. What color is yours, Ryu? I think mine would best be described as gray, because I'm going to be talking to you guys about the Dungeon Delver's Guide, a source book for 5th edition and advanced 5th edition. This Kickstarter is being run by Morris, who has created 33 previous Kickstarters, only one of which, the very first one, has failed. And if the name Morris sounds familiar, that is because this is Morris of ianworld.org and Ian Publishing. And that, in case you haven't heard of it before, is a very well-known site that is unofficial tabletop news for every tabletop game in existence, pretty much. 
This Kickstarter is currently sitting at 88,000 British pounds of its original 10,000 British pound goal, and it is definitely going to make, I'm going to say. So I want to give you guys a little bit of background on Advanced 5th Edition. It is described as an advanced rule system that adds depth to the official 5th Edition rules. So the whole thing about A5E is that it's not a rewrite of the 5th Edition rules, it's just some extra flavor to add on to what's already there to make your games a little bit more interesting. They have a lot of previous source books that have been made and they're they're really, really good. And if you know anything about Ian World and Ian Publishing, you will know that this is going to be top-notch as far as quality. A lot of A5E has taken inspiration from 4th edition and Pathfinder, and I can't help but think after what I know of A5E that perhaps 1D&D also got a little bit of inspiration from this as well. But on to the Kickstarter itself, which is a new source book for A5E. Every bit of this book is dungeon-themed. For example, the heritages, or races as we would normally call them, include ratlings, rockborn, and mycelial mushroom people. The subclasses are all things like oozmancer wizard and labyrinth priest cleric. Chapter 2 is all about building your dungeon. There are tips and tricks and other considerations for mapping it out. There is how to stock your dungeon with the nodes system. And the nodes system, that stands for novelties, obstacles, discoveries, escalation, and set pieces. There's how to create and use traps, along with a bunch of sample traps to go through. And there are several three-page dungeons already added in. I want to say there are eight of them at the moment. Chapter three is all about how to narrate your dungeon. So how to incorporate ability checks for various things that could happen there. There are magic items like the doorbreaker hammer or the lodestone dagger. There is a dungeony bestiary that has 50 plus monsters in it, such as the stone shark. And there is the underland gazetteer and the underland is a subsetting that Level Up and EM Publishing have created just to go with this Kickstarter. This book has been previewing for months and there are several preview links available. And that also includes the entire first chapter, which is how to use this book for fifth edition. Stretch goals include a map generator that uses the node system and other stretch goals were about different portions of the map generator for it to make different maps than just a dungeon map. The pledges here start at 20 pounds for the PDF, 50 pounds for the hardcover, 70 for the hardcover collector edition, and then there are several tiers ranging from 80 pounds to 485 pounds for everything that Level Up and Ian Publishing has made so far. The 485 pound tier being the collector's editions of everything. As I've said before, if you know anything about Ian World, then you will know that this is all community made. It is all community tested. It is probably top of the line balanced because Ian World is very serious about stuff like that. So I really think that this is just gonna be gold, just like everything else they've ever done. 
This Kickstarter closes on Monday, October 3rd, if you want to get in on it. So the art. (laughs) (laughs) The art's pretty good. I will will admit, all of these Kickstarters have really good quality art. Though this does strike me very much more of like the, I was going to say traditional sort of 1980s sort of, but I think this is actually kind of early 90s flavor. It definitely has a a bit of a nostalgic bent to it. Mm. Um, it also seems pretty clear to me that they used more than one artist. There are definitely. a couple of different distinct styles of art on display. All of them are good, but they're also noticeably different, which is interesting. Advanced 5th Edition is something that I've always been curious about, but I've never taken the plunge other than reading a couple of the books because correct me if i'm wrong we've covered this on a adventurous pack i believe we have yeah, yeah if we didn't cover the resource i think we covered one of their other kickstarters right yeah and i can remember liking it at the time but like i said never taking the plunge on it i do think that this book though does have a lot to offer just looking at the free chapters that they've released that if you really want to design your dungeons, and I don't just mean randomly generate or, you know, come up with a system like the five-room dungeon. I mean, if you want to actually, like, world-build your dungeons, this has some really good advice in it that would be applicable even if you're not playing in the advanced 5th edition setting. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The A lot of the tips that they have are sort of system agnostic mm-hmm. or at the very least very easily converted because they use pretty universal things like you know difficulty checks and things like that so yeah if you're just looking for help in designing dungeons or aspects of dungeons like traps and so forth this might be something that's worth picking up even if you don't intend to ever do anything with advanced 5e apart from it i've also just noticed it's shipping from southampton uk i think if i did pledge for this it would be cheaper for me to go and collect it than it would be to add the shipping costs <laughs> well links to sebastian crow's guide to drakenheim amethyst revelations and the dungeon delvers guide can be found in our show notes and now that we've spent our coins and our bags of holding are full let's leave the marketplace and check out some DD news sire i have News. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. One of the races introduced in Spelljammer Adventures in Space has been causing a bit of a stir lately, and unfortunately not for good reasons. Way back when TSR was in charge of D&D, they also produced a system called Star Frontiers. One of the races that appeared in Star Frontiers were the Yazarin, a race of large chimpanzees with a membrane stretched between their arms, legs, and torso that allowed them to glide for brief distances. TSR then acquired the license to produce a Buck Rogers tabletop RPG, and so everything Star Frontiers got thrown down the back of the dryer, never to be seen again. When it came time to produce the original Spelljammer in 2nd edition, TSR needed new creatures and species to put into space. They reached back behind the dryer, found the Yazarin, thought that was too hard to spell, changed a few minor details, and thus the Hadozi were born. Their 2nd edition origins were rather standard as far as Spelljammer races go. Originating on a warm, temperate world, the Hadozi had a fondness for the Imperial Elven Navy. 
The details of why they looked up to the elves were lost to time, particularly because the elves mistook the Hodozi as a sort of goblinoid race, and so did what second edition elves did best, just flat out ignored them. Eventually, the two species got to know each other a lot better when the Hidozi were willing to help the elves out during an event known as the First Unhuman War, an elven-led crusade against the beastmen raiding parties that would ravage and pillage their homeworlds. With a homeland lost to legend and nothing but a strong wanderlust to guide them, the Hidozi would show up anywhere there was a spelljamming ship to be found. Infamously sharp-tongued and with a love of vulgarity, complaints, and insults, the Hidozi were nevertheless loyal and hardworking. Plus, flying monkeys are great when it comes to working on the rigging. When 3rd edition rolled around, the Hadozi were actually given a bit of a retrofit to be aquatic-themed rather than space-themed. Appearing in the 3rd edition supplement Stormwreck, a sourcebook dedicated to the mechanics of the high seas, the Hadozi were introduced as master sailors. Aside from changing their background from space to sea, they were pretty much identical. A land lost to time, a strong sense of wanderlust, a love of the open ocean, and a potty mouth that could make a sailor blush. And despite the fact that even back as far as second edition, they were often given the nickname Deck Apes thanks to their strong primate features, by third edition it was apparent that particular term was looked upon as derogatory not only by the Hadozi, but by other more upstanding types as well. And then along came 5th edition. Instead of doing something simple like, for example, taking the entire 2nd edition lore and just dropping the deck ape derogative, leaving them as wanderlusting travelers with a long lost homeland, wizards decided to dip their toes into the lore waters. And by dip their toes into the waters, we actually mean insert their entire foot directly into their mouths. Their 5th edition description read as follows. The first Hadozi were timid mammals, no bigger than house cats. Hunted by larger natural predators, the Hadozi took to the trees and evolved wing-like flaps that enabled them to glide from branch to branch. Several hundred years ago, a wizard visited Yazir, the Hadozi homeworld, with a small fleet of spelljamming ships. Under the wizard's direction, apprentices laid magic traps and captured dozens of Hadozi. The wizard fed the captives an experimental elixir that enlarged them and turned them into sapient bipedal beings. The elixir had the side effect of intensifying the Hadozi's panic response, making them more resilient when harmed. The wizard's plan was to create an army of enhanced Hadozi warriors for sale to the highest bidder, but instead the wizard's apprentices grew fond of the Hadozi and helped them escape. The apprentices and the Hadozi were forced to kill the wizard, after which they fled, taking with them all remaining vials of the wizard's experimental elixir. With the help of their liberators, the Hadozi returned to their homeworld and used the elixir to create more of their kind. In time, all Hadozi newborns came to possess the traits of the enhanced Hadozi. Then, centuries ago, Hadozi took to the stars, leaving Yuzir's fearsome predators behind. When one takes off the fantasy layers of a Mad Wizard's experiments, what remains as the foundation of the lore is a race of people who were captured, enslaved, experimented on, put up for sale, and eventually released by the benevolence of their owners. The text that describes them as not really minding being enslaved echoes arguments made by slavery apologists in the US who often try to downplay the severity of the lived experience of enslaved peoples. The fact that Hadozi are based on monkeys or wild apes compounds the problem, because much derogatory art and literature equates native Africans with monkeys. 
If that wasn't enough, one of the pieces of artwork in the new book depicts Hadozi minstrels. The poses and outfits in that art bears a striking resemblance to 19th and early 20th century depictions of black minstrel entertainers, usually white men who dressed up in stereotypical blackface to mock freedmen. Most historians and sociologists consider the depictions in question to be extremely offensive. As one might expect, there was a pretty hefty backlash to this, with several Twitch streamers and Twitter folks doing some deep diving into the subject. We'll have links in the show notes for those that want to read up for themselves. Wizards of the Coast have since responded, removing a large amount of the offensive material from D&D Beyond, and they have issued the following press release, quote, We wanted to acknowledge and own the inclusion of offensive materials within our recent Spelljammer Adventures in Space content. We failed you, our players, and our fans, and we are truly sorry. The campaign includes a people called Tadozi, which first appeared in 1982. Regrettably, not all portions of the content relating to the Hadozi were properly vetted before appearing in our most recent release. As we continue to learn and grow through every situation, we recognize that to live our values, we have to do better. The press release continues saying, quote, Throughout the 50-year history of Dungeons & Dragons, some of the characters in the game have been monstrous and evil, using depictions that are painfully reminiscent of how real-world groups have been and continue to be denigrated. We understand the urgency of changing how we work to better ensure a more inclusive game. Effective immediately, we will remove the offensive content about the Hadozi in our digital versions, and these will no longer be included in future reprints of the book. Our priority is to make things right when we make mistakes. In addition, we've initiated a thorough internal review of the situation and will take the necessary actions as a result of that review. We are eternally grateful for the ongoing dialogue with the D&D community, and we look forward to introducing new, engaging and inclusive content to D&D for generations to come. D&D teaches that diversity is strength, for only a diverse group of adventurers can overcome the many challenges a D&D story presents. In that spirit, we are committed to making D&D as welcome and inclusive as possible. This part of our work will never end. End quote. Wizards of the Coast have also issued an errata PDF to the Spelljammer supplement that, alongside some other minor errata, such as changing several creatures' canonical challenge rating and hit points, has updated the Hadozi lore. What follows is the complete revised Hadozi 5th edition history. Adozi progenitors were mammals no bigger than house cats. Hunted by larger natural predators, they took to the trees and evolved wing-like flaps that enabled them to glide from branch to branch. Today, Hadozi are sapient bipedal beings eager to leave behind the fearsome predators of their homeworld and explore other worlds. In addition to being natural climbers, Hadozi have feet that are as dexterous as their hands, even to the extent of having opposable thumbs. Membranes of skin hang loosely from their arms and legs. When stretched taut, these membranes enable the Hadozi to glide. Hadozi wrap these wings around themselves to keep warm. Essentially, everything remains as it was, but with the deletion of the paragraphs where a mad wizard uplifts a species to sell them into slavery. All of this has left several people on the internet wondering, Given Wizards' recent strides in removing historical problematic material from things that were brought forward from previous editions without sensitivity checking it that later had to be altered or removed, how the heck did something like this, which had to be wholly invented for 5th edition, make it to publication? It's left several people wondering if Wizards are bypassing their sensitivity readers or have simply not hired enough of them. 
We'll likely never get the answers on how this got to print, but what we do have is a promise from wizards that they'll do better in the future. So this, when I first read the lore on the Hadozi, I have to be honest, I fell into the camp of not immediately seeing the problems that were there. But Same. on seeing it all condensed in one place with the artwork, I am now questioning how it got through. So just to take other people through the journey that I had, when you're reading it in isolation, when you're looking at it for things like the show notes, it's like, oh, okay, um, there was uh, experimentation on some monkey folk. Okay, that's, you know, that's a cool sci-fi idea. Sure, why not? And then, oh, they eventually sort of all rounded up and enslaved, but they eventually, you know, overcame that because that's great. That shows that they have defeated an evil and and that sort of thing. And that was all fantastic. Um, Then, you know, the fact that they're also a race of monkeys, which I would have thought wizards probably would have steered clear of naturally, given the very recent release of Journey Through the Radiant Citadel, you would have thought that, like, racial sensitivities would have been the forefront of their minds. And it wasn't until I was then, you know, somebody highlighted it on Twitter saying, hey, does anybody else feel that this is problematic? And then I read through it and it was just after I got to every paragraph, I was like, oh, oh no, oh no. And then you see the artwork and it's like, how, how did this get through the sensitivity readers? It's just, considering they've made so many strides as well. Like if you sort of do a bit of a parallel, originally, Curse of Stroud, they had the Vistani, they depicted them a particular way, it wasn't done in the most sensitive light, they came out, they admitted they were wrong, they changed it, and then, you know, again, taking all these steps, and I I keep saying Journey Through the Radiant Citadel, but that's because it was such an important work in moving away from all these stereotypes and having a real inclusive and diverse number of writers on it only to then go and actually create this because a lot of this didn't even remotely exist it's just i i uh how how is it yeah so i i didn't read the hadozi lore until this came up because same you know spell Spelljammer. yeah you're you're lucky i read any part <laughs> I mean... of the book to begin with I didn't read it just because I was trying to get to the uh, real meat of the book. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, monkey people. Cool. Moving on. And didn't even right. bother reading yeah. their blurbs. But yeah, it's now the less generous people on the Internet making arguments have questioned how performative wizards inclusivity and sensitivity stance is because you made mention of the fact that they've fixed things like the orcs and the drow and the vishtani and they released radiant citadel but the counter arguments that people have been making is okay radiant citadel they hired a bunch of what are essentially non-employed contractors and i don't mean Unemployed. I just mean they aren't direct employees right. of Wizards of the Coast, the company. They're contractors that were hired to do one specific job, and that job was to write a culturally diverse adventure for this book. So it could be argued, and has been argued by some, that that resource 
was sort of created in a vacuum without a lot of involvement from the core staff at Wizards of the Coast. And then, as you point out, this happens. So people are starting to wonder, are they even capable of knowing what they're doing wrong without mm -hmm. the internet blowing up at them after the fact? Because other than Radiant Citadel, every other resource where they've fixed something that's culturally, racially, or whatever problematic has only come after the backlash. And yeah, this is... I mean, the other thing is that apology did not sit well with a lot of people because, as you pointed out, they made a few references to past content. Like, they said, oh, the Hadozi first appeared in 1982. Right. And throughout the 50-year history of Dungeons & Dragons, there were problematic depictions. But this is new. Mm -hmm. Like, the old... the <laughs> And this is... This is probably going to sound a little off-color, but the monkey people lore from the 80s was better. Yep, from the, from the perspective of objectionable content. I just can't stop shaking my head at this. I really do hope that they live up to their promise, but we will see. I mean, I'm trying to... Th the next... Dragonlance isn't coming out. No, Dragonlance is the next thing that's dropping, mm -hmm. right? Yes, yes. Okay, so... I mean, they've already... The Kender are their own separate problem in many, many ways. <laughs> I mean, for the most part, all of the lore from Dragonlance is just based on sort of core D&D &D tropes. Right. And the funny thing is orcs aren't even a thing. No, they're not, orcs, not really. Orcs and drow don't exist in Dragonlance, which, I mean, if you if you really want to convoluted you can give props for Weiss and Hickman for maybe recognizing the problematic content back in the 80s and avoiding it but I don't want to deify them prematurely um but yeah so as far as I can remember from my discussions with the research beholders and banging my head against that long rest for longer than I want to mm -hmm. admit there is nothing in Dragonlance on the face of it, that should be inherently offensive to anybody. So if it comes out and there's something in there, like, there has got to be something systemically wrong at Wizards. Yeah. Now, just to sort of go the the flip side with Dragonlance, the, from what I remember of the original novels, there is a lot of sexist undertones in it, certainly. And yeah, it's, it definitely was an it, it was an eighties fantasy story. Right, and those exactly. were not not female empowerment stories. Let's say, <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. It was very stereotypical in that regards. Um, but as far as I can recall, I don't like you said. There's no um, no sort of orc style race that can be more closely compared. But I also seem to recall that there are uh, uh, that there was a bit of an issue around um, what I think I would just blanketly put as the mixing of races, like the the half races. It was kind of you know that that was that was an element that came up multiple times. It's been so long since I've read them. I'm trying to remember the name 
Um, was it? Hang on, uh, Tanis. That's one of the characters, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. He, he was. Yeah, he or was. Tantalas, if you want to go his elven name. Right, but the point being that a lot of people were sort of uncomfortable with him because of his mixed racial heritage. So whilst there's not a direct comparison, there are still things that could happen. But I'm also thinking, well, up until now, I was also thinking, surely Wizards is aware of this, but I guess we shall see. There could potentially be some problematic content involving Gold Moon and Riverwind's people, because they're yes, they're yep, very heavily that. they're very heavily inspired by Native Americans, mm-hmm. and probably the stereotypical cowboys and Indians, Native Americans. So, right. yeah, mm-hmm. we'll see. Mm-hmm. It's also unclear if, um, like we said, the the fallout from the legal issues has given wizards the ability to use any of the main characters. The story might not even touch on the heroes of the lance at all, in which case that would avoid a number of those things. But if they start doing, like, a background involving the hill people, that could get dicey. Yeah, and I guess sort of the good thing is, though, is that after this blowing up, you can almost be absolutely convinced that people at Wizards are now going to be pouring over that release, looking for anything that could be construed as uh, any of those depictions that we said earlier, anything overtly sexist or uh, potentially overtly racist in it. So, yeah, let's hope that actually, as they said, you know, they aim to do better. So let's hope that they actually come through on that promise this time. I can't figure out what their thinking process was for putting this in there in the first place, though. I mean, honestly, I think what it probably was was an innocent idea that just ran away and nobody actually intended any harm. But the whole point is, is that unintended harm is still harm. And just because the systems that we live in have normalized this kind of stuff doesn't make it right. And so especially with a company that is trying to be inclusive, they should have been a little more on the ball. Now that we're all caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and open our adventurer's journals for a class in Tactical Falling. What the hell did you just cast? Flaming Hand of Fiery Doom. A fourth level spell on a zero level peasant. Yeah. Look out below! Okay, how did that feel? Ah, wet. I thought this was the one where you were going to teleport me. Oh, I ran out of spell slots a few minutes ago. Well, you could have warned me. I mean, if you knew that we were doing the water landing, I would have changed it to my swimming trunks and everything. You know how heavy this cape gets when it's wet? What are you two idiots doing? And what is on Peach's tail? Those are the swim trunks I was supposed to have changed into before the last test, apparently. Really? What? Nothing. It's just, uh, chartreuse with pink polka dots is definitely a choice. Anyway, why are they just draped on my dinosaur? And where did this pool come from? We told Peaches the pool would stay around to play in if we could get some help with our experiments. And the experiments are? Falling. Really? 
You needed a dinosaur in a pool to figure out that things fall down. As usual, there's slightly more to it than that. Falling in D&D is something that's often overlooked. For it to do a significant amount of damage, the fall has to be from a rather high starting point, and unfortunately a lot of scenarios don't have a great deal of verticality to them. Part of that is often practical. If you play in a game that uses minis on a tabletop, or if you're playing in a virtual environment that's top-down rather than isometric, conveying height can be difficult. Also, many locations follow the Star Wars school of architecture and interior design. Either there are small drops or minor changes in the landscape that are barely noticeable, or it's a bottomless pit. There is rarely anything in between. Unless there's lava. Then you can probably see the bottom of the pit, but it doesn't make the fall any more survivable. Whenever you find yourself in a location that has drop-offs, pits, or significant changes in the height of things, you really should take that into account. Even if a fall off a ledge won't necessarily kill you, it can drastically change what's happening during a chase scene or combat. For example, let's say you're in an urban location and you're fighting on rooftops. Multi-story buildings are a thing, so it's not unreasonable to have a rooftop that's 30 feet off the ground. Falling damage is 1d6 per 10 feet, so if you manage to shove someone off the roof, that's an average of 12 damage they're taking, and they end up prone. On top of that, if they want to rejoin their friends who are still on the roof, they have to find a way back up. Unless they're an expert climber, that's probably going to take a turn or two. The rules for falling and the damage from it were expanded in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, probably because Tasha spent so much of her time falling for Gretz. You- Hey, 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 my brooding robes are soaked because of you. I think I get a pass. One. I'll take it. Anyway, with the new rules from Tasha's, falling has some more elements to it. First of all, as my robes can now attest, falling into water is different from falling onto the ground. If a creature is falling into water, they can make an athletics or acrobatics check to take half damage on impact. And if anyone questions how you can take any damage at all whilst falling into liquid, I challenge you to find a high dive platform and do a belly flop. Go ahead, we'll wait. And then we'll call you a cleric. The other thing that's now officially got rules is falling onto another creature. As long as the falling creature is not tiny, the one already on the ground makes a dexterity save, DC 15 by default. If they fail, the falling damage the falling creature would have taken is split between both creatures. Also, if the creature on the ground is smaller or less than two size categories larger, they end up prone as well. So me falling on Ostron means both of us are prone. Me falling on peaches just results in an angry dinosaur. And an angry rogue. So that's all great if you have the fighter and barbarian on top of Nagatomi Tower tossing the enemies around like baseballs. But what happens when the enemy Minotaur suddenly realizes the party's wizard wandered a little too close to the edge and starts a charge? Fortunately, there are a number of ways to avoid a fall, or at least avoid the damage from it. First, just be something that can fly. At the moment, the options are Aarakocra, Fairy, and Owlin, with an asterisk on tieflings because some of them can get wings in certain circumstances. However, you have to make sure whatever knocked you into the open air didn't also make you prone. So if it was a minotaur that knocked you off the roof, you're in trouble, because if you got pushed, it also means you got knocked prone, and a creature with a fly speed cannot fly while prone. But I've got the whole fall to recover, right? I hear you ask. Well, maybe, but probably not. 
There's no official ruling on how fast creatures fall, and even the Spelljammer resources haven't yet given us details on what the gravity of Toril and Oerth are. However, if you assume things work like the real world, hang on, this is a lot of math. Yeah, physics is a lot of math. Did Rostro do this? I am not reading this if Rostro did it. I am perfectly capable of doing math on my own, thank you. Look, you can see my calculations in the margins. That's... writing? Oh, I thought, thought someone was cleaning off a quill or something. Anyway, if you do out the math as if it were the real world, most medium-sized creatures have what would be called a terminal velocity of 32 feet per second. The rules say that one turn of combat is six seconds, so your average ballistic warlock is falling about 200 feet a turn. Interestingly, 200 feet is also where the amount of falling damage you can take maxes out. That's 20d6, in case you forgot the calculation, with an average value of 70. Anyway, point being, if you're falling more than 200 feet and you can fly, you have a chance to recover from being prone before you turn into goo on the ground. Option number two is to be a monk and get to level four as fast as possible. At that level, monks acquire the ability Slow Fall, which lets them use their reaction to reduce falling damage by five times their monk level. That means starting at level four, they can swan dive off of 30 foot high buildings and not have to worry about getting hurt when they land. A slightly more reliable method though is having a magic user around. Featherfall is the most obvious spell that most people recall when preventing falling damage comes up in a discussion, but Levitate is also viable. The spell states that when the spell ends, the target quote, floats gently to the ground, and that's apparently regardless of height. The other magical solutions are riskier, however. Gaseous Form and Fly both give the target a fly speed, which would let them recover from falling. However, both spells require touch casting, so unless the caster is a sorcerer with metamagic, they'd have to dive off the ledge with you to cast it, and then they're in the same predicament. Tensor's floating disc would break their fall, but it's still a hard surface and you have to catch them before they fall more than 30 feet. Telekinesis at least has some better range to it, but you have to make sure you can get them to a ledge before the spell wears off. Unlike Levitate, Telekinesis has no soft landing feature built in. Investiture of Wind would work, but apart from being a 6th level spell, it only works on the caster and, again, you'd have to cast it before you hit the ground. Finally, you have Windwalk, another 6th leveler that grabs up to 10 creatures and turns them into floating gas, but again, timing is everything. The other magical solution is somewhat controversial and goes back to the calculations Ryu read out earlier. It's not stated officially in any rules, but it's generally assumed that any form of teleporting ignores momentum. Note that I did not say they conserve or negate momentum, they ignore it. This is mostly done for DM sanity. The problem is that if you assume teleportation cancels out all momentum, you have to deal with the players that I like to set on fire. They'll point out, usually after your star villain makes a crafty escape, that someone who is made completely motionless while teleporting will have their feet and legs sanded off when they land on a planet whose surface spins at 18 miles per second. On the other hand, if you say the teleport spells conserve momentum, then all the amateur or professional engineers in your player group will start giggling like schoolgirls and start setting up teleportation runes at the bottom of high cliffs with the other end pointed at the impregnable castle. 
Then they start asking you if dwarves know how to mine tungsten and hand you a sheet of calculations with kinetic bombardment written on the top, and you have to find a new player group after you hide the bodies. I think this is yours, and that it should also be in the vault. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. Anyway, for everyone's sake, there's a sort of universal truce where everyone assumes that teleportation just places you wherever the spell says, and nobody worries about how you were moving before that happened. That leaves a loophole where teleportation can cancel out falling damage, but most DMs would rather deal with that than everything Katie just talked about. Or, you know, you could just play an Eberron. Before every adventure that isn't taking place on a flat plane, hop onto the lightning rail, take a quick trip to Sharn, because over there they hand out featherful tokens like commemorative t-shirts. You're welcome for that tip, by the way. You know, every problem is not solved by going to Eberron. Mmm, agree to disagree. Peaches! Stop splashing Katie's nightmare. Oh, you see how much trouble you two cause? No wonder Katie slipped out. Now, grab your obnoxious shorts, and I'll meet you both in the scrying pool after I negotiate peace here. What news from the north? Riders of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last time, we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, the first official piece of the next evolution, or 1D&D, is now live. What are your thoughts? Are criticals and failures ruined forever? How well will the feats fit into the new character builds? And what do you think the classes will look like given the changes to the spell lists? TR Knight on Discord says, As I read more about 1D&D, I feel like they're trying to create an updated rule set for perceived problems that could be solved by simply asking your DM, can we change this so we all have fun? I might snag a few of their ideas as homebrew changes to my 5th edition campaign, but I'm not feeling any urge to purchase a new version of D&D when I have so much time and money already invested in 5e, which my gaming groups are enjoying already. And Marty's Meat Jammer on Discord says, Well, it seems like episode 1 D&D has all the hallmarks of a phantom menace. On one hand, wizards want to improve their product. On the other, they don't want to change their product too much and risk alienating their 5th edition onboarded fanbase. I think it's another case of wanting to make everyone happy. And we all know how that goes. We're in the early days, certainly, but one thing that keeps coming to mind for me when people make comparisons between D&D's New Evolution and Pathfinder 2nd Edition is that Paizo released a complete, bound playtest rulebook so critiques could be made in context of a big picture, which I believe was also the case with the D&D Next playtest. By taking a UA approach to a new edition, I think Wizards of the Coast is going to nudge DMs and players into picking and choosing ideas for their 5th edition games, which will result in more than one D&D out there in the world. And it's possible that the final consensus rules might be bland. I'd just hate to lose good game design ideas to playtest fatigue and or the majority votes of such a sprawling fanbase. He continues on to say, also, I feel like I've heard for years about the future of the hobby depending on new players enthusiastically taking up the Dungeon Master mantle. And so far, as you raised in your discussion, it sounds like Wizards is playing with the idea of nerfing the DM. I definitely subscribe to Ostron's theory about players getting a power fantasy buff. It's right in line with rule changes in various professional sports that lead to more points being scored. But maybe Wizards has something up their sleeves to sweeten the pot for the DMs. 
Otherwise, it just feels like they're taking a gamble on the goodwill of what should be their target audience. Is it too early to have this many strong feelings and tinfoil hat theories? Probably, but we're nerds, right? It's what we do. I'll be watching for future D&D 1 playtest materials and, of course, listening for all your insights. On a lighter note, I'm trying to incorporate the exclamation Mother of Fire Jesus into my rotation of sayings. The verbose bard on Discord says, Ostron's tinfoil hat theory feels right to me. It feels like Wizards has been changing D&D for some time now. Not fundamentally, but spiritually up to this point. Unfortunately, I can't think of a better way to word this than to use video game analogies. D&D 5th Edition is like Dragon Age Origins, and 1D&D is Dragon Age 2. Both games were fun and set in the same universe, though some of the lore was changed. That being said, the games were quite different. Dragon Age Origins' story was about stopping a great evil at all costs, and in contrast, Dragon Age 2's emphasis was on its new combat style and being larger-than-life hero and building your legend. For another example, Wizards wants its D&D to be more like Call of Duty than Rainbow Six Siege. Rainbow Six Siege is a team-based tactical shooter and Call of Duty is a fast-paced shooter with an unkillable hero. Neither game is wrong, they just appeal to very different audiences, and one of those audiences is about 60 million players larger. Wizards of the Coast will streamline features and cut out many of the unique and possibly problematic or even just confusing things that might keep someone new from picking up the D&D and playing it. As for the Nat 20s and Nat 1s, I think most of us will do what we've always done and just keep on ignoring what the official rules are and use our own house rules. Thank you all again for your hard work in bringing all the great episodes to us. So who used the phrase Mother of Fire Jesus? Because that was a whole week ago and I cannot remember that at all. That that was, it was actually your line. Um, <laughs> it was referring to in the Genasi lore. Oh, yes. If, yeah, 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 yeah. If someone, if an elemental god mm-hmm. procreated with a humanoid the result right. doesn't make a sound it. and all that yeah it's it's a it's a genasi not anything else yeah no it's it's all coming back to me now absolutely a good phrase to put in your rotation i feel now see i just want to completely disagree with the verbose bard about all the nice things they said about dragon age 2 but this is a D podcast so i should probably not go on that rant <laughs> i mean it has dragon in the title yeah but we have been delving into video game analogies a lot this evening. <laughs> right, but it, it does help to draw parallels that people can understand, you know, common touch points. Um, one thing that I did want to bring up, though, was in the verbose bard's feedback saying about how uh, they think that what most people will do is just ignore the official rules and make the house rules. And I will say that, yes, I do think long term that that is going to happen. But I also feel that right now the attitude to take that when it's certainly when it comes to the playtest rules is actually doing a bit of a disservice to it because the one thing with the playtest rules is you know you are absolutely entitled to play D&D however you like you could literally replace every single part of the system as long as that's what everybody around your table agrees with but the default rules are what the assumed product would be if you were to say to somebody, hey, we're playing D&D, and they say, what edition? And you say, fourth edition, then you're going to have a preconceived notion of what that game is going to be like based on what the default rules of fourth edition are. 
If you then turned up and it turned out that they threw out so much of it, it's basically the equivalent of GURPS, you'd kind of feel a bit missold. And if the reason for doing that was, oh yeah, we just didn't like 4th edition, so we just homebrew absolutely everything, then whilst, again, you are completely entitled to do that, and if that's how you guys want to play more power to you, it really kind of missells what it is to the public. And so when it comes to the playtest, it is really important to look at the rules as they are, to think about how those rules would actually work at your tables, and then give feedback based on what the rules as written are. Because if the solution is, oh, I'm just going to ignore that, then they're never going to get feedback, and it will just lead to every DM having to invent homebrew rules, meaning that there is no common base and then the rules are useless. And I just also want to point out off the back of that, that is not specifically directed at the verbose bard, it's just that this has come up on the internet time and time again about how, oh, why is everybody worried about the natural ones making sure that everything misses all the time? We'll just homebrew that out. Or, oh, I'm not too bothered about the fact that they don't include uh, I don't know, whatever feature here, we're just going to homebrew it. The point is, if you have to homebrew it, why? Like, what's the point of having the rules? You're effectively coming up with an entire RPG system yourself, and that's what the default rules are supposed to be for. So let's make sure that they are robust and decent to the point that we don't have to homebrew unless we opt to, rather than it being a necessity. Yeah, because coming up with an entire rule set on your own is not, it's not a small amount of work. One of us has experience with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did think that Marty's feedback was an interesting point because I do think that they are missing something or they are possibly making more work for themselves by doing this piecemeal rather than releasing an entire document or an entire rule set. Because, like we were even bringing up when we were analyzing it, they split up the spell lists differently. You know, there are only three spell lists now, not the six or seven that we currently have. And we don't really have any good way to assess what impact that has. Right. Because we don't have any clue what the new classes look like. So we can't say, oh, well, this spell shouldn't be in the primal list. It should be in the celestial list because the clerics need to use it for X, Y, and Z. And the rangers and the druids aren't going to use it at all because of A, B, and C abilities they have and stuff like that. Now, we could get into those analyses when the classes drop but it it leads to more speculation and more work in trying to go back and be like okay where was the link that had that spell lists in it and all of that which i mean obviously for something as big as the spell list they're probably going to reprint it but if there's a similar issue with a smaller rule set i think they're like i said they might be making more work for themselves than they need to. On the other hand, it could also be argued that releasing the entire rule set all at once is why the Ranger made it to publication the way it did and ended up being, you know, such a 
problematic class for them to deal with in 5th edition. I also just like how many people are telling me I'm right. That never gets me. <laughs> well, speaking of people that are doing things right, in general feedback, Rat Queen on Discord says, Great Adventures Pack segment. It's my turn to run the next campaign for my D&D group, and I was deliberating between Eberron and Cursus Strad. Had I seen these maps earlier, I might have chosen Strad. I may just be subscribing to Benius Tokens. Which means she chose Eberron, which means she did the right one, so <laughs> congratulations. Good news is, she can still use Benio's tokens for that. And that brings us to this week's community questions. What's your story of when the biggest enemy your character faced was gravity? Was it a nice, gentle conclusion, or more of a hard stop at the end? And are you familiar with Advanced 5th Edition? Have you played in the Amethyst setting before? Any stories from those experiences that you'd like to share? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 224th entry into our Chronicle. We'll be back with our 225th entry on September 14th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at heroesrisednd. You can email us at sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com, or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you, so take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favorite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy. And be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout and save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to us on Patreon. Tiers start from just $4 per month and give you live recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally, you might get dragged into a recording or two for some distant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow. And that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our social media mage Ray Ray, our Conjuration Cabal, Blood Lake, Indigo Spectre, and Gath Memvar, and all our audio alchemists, Mikey, Branwin, and Timosthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sobby, Rat Queen, Amber Squirrel Craning, Strife, Cordrin, Daft Kronk, The Record Spinning Economy, the shadow known only as Azeral, and that one guy. Vince Fept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincefept.bandcamp.com and Lowe of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Lair and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers.
luckily they actually have something to do with this segment as well which is the best way to describe what is my kickstarter but i forgot to read the intro so i'm gonna have to do all that again i was wondering (laughs) what the hell you were doing my document was scrolled too far down so we're just gonna save that we'll come back to that that'll happen again shortly here we go oh i shit (laughs) you shit (laughs) that would explain the stains do you know how difficult it is to get that out of a cape? Oh, I ran out of cells. Cell splots? Cell splots. Pretty sure I've oh, said I... that in a recording before. Anyway, point be Point, point? Mm. Point. It's not stated officially in any rules, but it's generally assumed that any form of teleporting ignores Romentum. <laughs> so close. I feel like Wizards has been tra- changing, changing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wizards has also decided we need more trains. Yep. Right. <laughs> I just went back up a um, a line and almost said they appeal to different audiences with an unkillable hero. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with Gath. You're just afraid of Curse of Strahd. That is complete horseshit because I played Curse of Strahd in second edition. Yeah. <laughs> Not only did I take Curse of Strad, I added Thacko to it for extra torture. <laughs> All right, does anybody have anything on anything? <laughs>